The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 5:21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter Five as we continue through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, if you were able to be with us, we concluded uh, with verse 20, which I told you is the thesis statement of the sermon. So let's start there again. Look at verse 20. Read it with me. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, throughout this series, we've seen that the scribes and the Pharisees uh, have merely an external righteousness. In other words, their righteousness consists of doing the right actions, the right deeds. They may have the right actions, but what we've simultaneously seen Jesus say is that their hearts are not filled with the right affections, affections for God. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees do what they do for their own glory, for their own praise they do it for the love of themselves and jesus consistently says that's not righteousness doesn't matter how righteous your actions look if there's no internal affection that's not righteousness that's hypocrisy it's wanting to be perceived as righteous when you aren't actually that contrary to that jesus says real righteousness is when your external actions flow from internal affection the external, the internal, they match. Like, like in other words, when Jesus right here in verse 20, when he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He, he's not saying that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to do more external actions than the scribes and the Pharisees. Like they've got a 90 on the holiness test and you need a 100. You've got to do more than they do. No, when he says that you've got to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's saying not that you have to have more external actions, but that you've got to have different internal affections than they do. You've, you've got to have a different heart than they do. The righteousness that Jesus is calling for in the Sermon on the Mount is the righteousness of a transformed heart. That's the thesis statement of the sermon. The rest of the sermon is going to unpack what this righteousness looks like, this righteousness of matching affections and actions. 
what does that look like? The sermon's going to unpack it in what it looks like in relation to the word of God. It's going to unpack it in what it looks like in relation to worship of God. And it's going to unpack it into what it looks like in relation to the world. The rest of chapter 5 shows us what this transformed heart righteousness looks like in relation to the word. In other words, it shows us what it looks like to live in line with the word of God, not merely out of duty, but out of delight. The scribes and the Pharisees, like they, they may externally keep the word, but were they really keeping it if their hearts were not internally transformed? Jesus says no. Externally it may look like it, but if the internal is a match, no, they're not really keeping it. Your righteousness has got to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees in relation to the word. In other words, your word-keeping actions must flow from word-loving affections. Jesus spends the rest of chapter 5 showing us what that looks like through six examples. We're going to take six weeks to walk through these six examples. We're going to take them one at a time. So for the rest of this morning, we're just sinking our teeth down into example number one. Look at it with me. It begins in Matthew 5 and verse 21. Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. So, I'm willing to bet that when all of us were kids, we had a situation in which we went to one of our parents asking for permission to do something or to go somewhere. And when they told us no, we immediately went to parent number two to ask the same thing. Not only did all of us do that as kids, but if you have kids, I'm willing to bet that they have done the exact same thing to you. Nobody teaches this, this generational sin, people. Nobody teaches them how to do this. Generation after generation, kids do this to their parents, all with the false hope, we know, of getting a different answer out of parent number two. It's, it's like they want, my kids, it's like they want me to say, you have heard your mother say, but I say to you. You have heard the maternal no, but I give you the paternal yes. Every kid wants to hear that, and none of them do. Because parents won't let their kids pit them against one another. Yet, in our text, did we not just see Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I say to you? In fact, as we, I told you, there are six examples in the rest of chapter 5. And as we walk through these six examples, we're going to see Jesus say the same thing six times. And he's saying it about the Old Testament. Like right here, in verse 21, when he says, you've heard it said, to those of old, it makes specific that you know, I'm talking about those who received the word of God on Mount Sinai. You've heard it said. Right after he says, you've heard it said to those of old, he quotes from Exodus 20, from the Ten Commandments. He quotes commandment number six. You shall not murder. And then he paraphrases what the rest of the Old Testament teaches about those who do murder, that they will be liable to judgment. And then he says, but I say to you. Like, I mean, that begs the question, is Jesus doing what all of our parents refused to do? 
is God the Son pitting His Word against the Word of God the Father. Like as He's saying, you've, you've heard it said no in the Old Testament, but I say to you, yes, in the New. Another way of asking this would be, is Jesus abolishing the law? Now, if you were with us last week, you should know immediately that the answer to that is no because of what we heard him say last week in verse 17. Look back up at it. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Therefore, right here and all throughout the rest of chapter 5 and all six of these examples, Jesus isn't abolishing the law. He's showing us what it looks like for him to fulfill it, to fill it up, to complete it, to, to bring it to its goal. In other words, I think it might be better to translate Jesus' words this way. You have heard it said, and I say to you. That's a completely legitimate and possible translation of the Greek. I think it's a better one because the adversative conjunction, but right here, it makes it sound like Jesus is about to contradict and correct the Old Testament. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, murder's cool now. It's clearly not what he's saying. He's not contradicting the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he's affirming it. Not only is he affirming its authority, but he's doing so while simultaneously putting his own word on the same authoritative level. In, in other words, it's like Jesus is saying, you've heard God say before in his word. And now you're hearing God say more because I am God still speaking my word. The Son of God is not pitting his word against that of God the Father. No, they speak with one voice always. All of this word is all of God's word. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. It's all spoken. It's the word of God the Father, it's the word of God the Spirit, and it all is the word of God the Son. Jesus is saying, you have heard the word of God, my word. Now let me show you how I'm fulfilling it. Because you sure haven't been shown that by your teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees. And what does Jesus show us? How is he fulfilling? He shows us the necessity of of heart transformed righteousness, of, of the transformed heart righteousness. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You, you see what Jesus is saying right here. You see, in, in other words, it's like he's saying, you could keep the external action of the commandment like you could go through your whole life never murdering anyone and still not be living in line with god's word because jesus says it's not merely about external action it's about your heart it's about internal affection and you may not be murdering people but still be filled with anger towards them and that is where murder begins with an anger-filled heart. Is that not we, what we learn in Scripture from the very first story of murder? Go back to Genesis chapter 4 where Cain 
murders his brother Abel. Where, where does that murder begin? Just read Genesis 4 and verse 5. Cain was very angry, it says. A heart filled with anger is where murder begins. We'll, we'll see this play out. You see it play out if you just read through Matthew's Gospel. You see it play out through the Pharisees. The very ones who had pride themselves on the fact that they had never committed murder, you will see them filled with anger, filled with hate supremely toward Jesus, and you will see that anger eventually erupt in murder when they crucify the sinless Son of God. Right here, with Jesus' words, he's moving past the external to get at the internal. He goes for the heart because he's God. And 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And a heart filled with anger, even if it never commits the action of murder, a heart filled with anger is a heart headed towards judgment. Both in, in this life, And in the next. That's what Jesus goes on to say. Look at verse 22 again. And I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And in what way, Jesus? In what way? He tells us. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Live with a heart filled with anger, Jesus says, that, that pattern puts you on a path toward judgment in this life. Is that not what he says? He says, insult your brother and you'll be liable to the council. The Greek right there is the word for Sanhedrin. That was the Jewish council, Jewish court system. In other words, you'll be liable on a human level to human courts. Now, it's important, right here, it's important to remember something that we've talked about before throughout this series, that the Sermon on the Mount presents itself to us as wisdom literature. You remember us talking about this? And wisdom literature in Scripture, it, it lays out general principles for wise living. Remember, Jesus is unpacking for us the makarios life. Remember that word back from the Beatitudes? Makarios, blessed, truly joyful are those. He's laying out for us what it looks like to live the truly wise, truly joyful life. And right here, Jesus is saying that generally, not necessarily in every specific instance, but generally, if you live filled with anger, harboring hate, then even if that doesn't come out in murder, it's going to come out. Like maybe an insult, maybe some slander, maybe some libel, maybe some tweets. It's going to come out, and it's got you on a path where you are likely to get into trouble, run into judgment in this life. But... Even if not, even if somehow you're able to live like hiding your hate, 
You never face trouble or judgment in this life. You're able to put on face, hypocritical face. Jesus says you definitely will face judgment in the next. I mean, I can't clean this up and make it pretty for you this morning, Shades. I can't, I can't make this like more acceptable to the modern notions of, of our, our mind. Jesus literally says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell, Gehenna. It's the Greek word. Will be liable to the Gehenna of fire. I mentioned Gehenna right there because, first and foremost, the word Gehenna refers to a literal valley that's right outside the city of Jerusalem. I've seen it. I've laid eyes on it. The Valley of Hinnom, Gehenna. It, uh, it was once, if you read your Old Testament, you'll find that it was once a site of human sacrifices made to the pagan god Molech. People literally burned their own children. Because such horrendous atrocities were, were committed there, later tradition tells us that it actually became a place eventually uh, like the city's dumping ground where they would dump trash and rubbish and burn it. And it was like there was always fire and always smoke rising from the valley of Gehenna. You can see see how easily this would become, this place would become symbolic for the place of God's ultimate judgment. Those, those who sinned against God through Moloch-like idolatry, turning from God to idols, sinning against others made in God's image, those who lived a life turned in that direction would ultimately find themselves outside the city of God in a place like Gehenna, excluded from his people, experiencing his fiery judgment. Gehenna, hell. We, we talked about this uh, during our, our series in Revelation. If you remember in that series, we talked about how Revelation, it pictures new creation. One of, one of the images that God gives us, symbolic images for new creation, is that of a city. And the wicked are located outside the city, like Gehenna was located outside of Jerusalem. This is a picture of the wicked being under the judgment of God. And we talked about how all of that judgment language, it's symbolic language. Throughout Scripture, fire is used as a symbol of God's judgment. Darkness is used as a symbol of God's judgment. You can't press any of that language too literally because if you want to get really literal, fire and darkness can't go together. Fire produces light. What is literal here, that all of this language is trying to give us some notion of, what is literal here is ultimate exclusion from the city of God, ultimate exclusion from his new creation, ultimate exclusion from his people, ultimate judgment from God, which is more horrific than any symbol of fire or darkness could ever depict. This is why... Jesus calls it Gehenna, hell. It's a way of getting at the horror of ultimate separation from God. And right here, Jesus says that living with a heart filled with hate puts you on a path toward hell. Like even if you escape judgment in this life, Jesus says you won't in the, in the next... 
Do you see what he's doing right here? He's, he's issuing, this is a loving thing that he's doing right here. He is issuing a wake-up call to anyone who is bought into the hypocritical righteousness taught by that and the scribes and the Pharisees. Teaching you just live your whole life without murder and you're good. Jesus is like, that's not true. You can live your whole life externally obeying the law, never murdering, and still have a heart that's aligned with hell. Shades, Jesus right here, let's clear a few things up, okay? Jesus right here, he's not talking about sinning once by calling somebody a fool and thus you're condemned forever. He's, He's not talking about losing your salvation right here like you're an authentic believer in jesus but because you get angry at people every now and then up tough luck for you no he's talking about a pattern that reveals the path of your life he's issuing a wake-up call to people who think they're saved think they're okay think they're good but he's saying your heart condition should reveal to you you've never experienced salvation in the first place because when you experience salvation your heart is transformed to be filled with affection not with anger your heart is transformed to love and want to harbor holiness not love harboring hate shades Do you see what's at the heart of what Jesus is saying? He's not saying, real Christians never get angry. That's not what he's saying at all. Jesus got angry. He even called the Pharisees fools. Same word he's using right here. Look it up. Matthew 23 and verse 17. Calls them fools. And he was not sinning and he was not in danger of being liable to the council or liable to the judgment of 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 the hell of fire, Gehenna. No, he was angry, but he was filled with righteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But Jesus isn't even saying that a real Christian will never experience sinful anger. All of us do. I, I would be the first in the guilty line. I experience anger. And probably only a fraction of it is ever righteous anger. Almost all of it is sinful anger. What Jesus is saying, what's at the heart of what he's saying is what does your heart hang on to? Does your heart hang on to hate or to holiness? Yeah, we all experience sinful anger, but does your heart hang on to it, just love harboring that, or are you convicted? It's a confession. Repentance. Because I hate sitting and hanging on to sin. I want to sit and hang on to my Savior. Does does your heart hang on to anger or affection for Jesus? What's the pattern? What's the pattern of your heart? Jesus is not after He is not after mere external action that lives in line with the Word. No, He came to fulfill the law, which was always aimed at the heart. The heart of the law can be found in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He came to fulfill the law, which was always aimed at the heart. He is after 
internal affections of a transformed heart that loves and longs to live in line with the Word of God. So the question becomes, how do we pursue that? That's what he's after. Like, how, how in the world do I pursue a transformed heart full of affection for Jesus that fights against harboring anger How do I pursue that? Jesus is glad we asked because that's exactly what he unpacks in verses 23 to 26. Verses 23 to 26, Jesus is going to give us two examples. Two examples of new heart-shaping habits. Heart-shaping habits. Look at the first one. Verses 23 to 24. So, in other words, how are you going to do this, have this transformed heart. He says, so, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift. This example concerns anger towards brothers and sisters in the faith, which I know none of us have ever experienced. Especially not over the last couple years. These verses have really, really strong echoes of the first time someone ever harbored hate towards a brother. They got really strong echoes of the story of Cain and his hate against Abel. That anger took place in the context of worship and offering sacrifices. That anger also eventually expressed itself in murder. It It seems that Jesus is drawing on that story to point us in a different direction. Point us in a different direction by giving us new heart-shaping habits. In other words, what, what I mean is he's assuming we all will experience anger. He's assuming that's gonna happen. But he gives us new habits through which the Holy Spirit will be at work to transform our hearts. That's how the Holy Spirit does his transformative work. The Holy Spirit does not transform you the way that Mary Poppins cleans a room. He does it as he reshapes you through heart, habits of the heart. That's why one of the primary ways he reshapes you is through this word, through reading this word and constantly seeing your life through its lens. He's at work through that habit. He's at work through the habit of worship. He's at work through the habit of the table, through the habit of prayer. He's at work through all of these habits of the heart to reshape the heart. And right here, the habit that Jesus gives us is the habit of true reconciliation. True reconciliation. And he quite clearly says that takes precedence over any external action. Do you see that? In the situation that Jesus describes, he describes somebody being at the temple about to offer their gift at the altar. That is an external act of worship prescribed by the Old Testament. Like they're doing what they've been told to do externally. And he says when they're in that situation and they remember... There's a brother or sister who has something against them. In other words, they've offended this person. They've expressed anger. That's what he's talking about right here in this passage. They've expressed anger towards this person, perhaps insulted them, and the person legitimately has something against them. So what will they do? Like Cain, will they hang on to their anger and their hate, let it fester 
Or will they humble themselves by going to their brother? You've got, you got to realize, when you're, when you're offering a gift at the altar, you're not by yourself in the courts of the temple. You're, you're in front of a whole host of people. You're going to have to give some explanation of why you're stopping what you're doing. You're going to have to humble yourself and say, I, I, I cannot do this right now. I have something I need to get right first that takes precedence over the external action. I've got to make sure I'm coming here with the right affections in my heart. Will they humble themselves, go to their brother or sister, confess their sin, ask for forgiveness, seek real reconciliation doesn't mean it will always be possible that the other person will grant forgiveness remember this is wisdom literature it's giving us a general principle i mean romans 12 18 tells us as far as it depends on you be at peace with all people jesus is showing us how we seek that how we seek being a peacemaker like he called us to be through the beatitudes how we seek showing mercy how we seek being a meek person a gentle person you seek true reconciliation. Forming such habits will reshape our hearts. One from, from whose pattern has been anger to one with a pattern of affection. Shades, is this our pattern? Is this the habit of our heart? Like right now, in this moment, sitting in worship. We are in the setting Jesus is describing. Sitting in worship right now. Are you remembering someone who legitimately has something against you because of anger that you have aimed at them? Or maybe, maybe they don't even know it. Like you've just been secretly harboring hate. Maybe over something they said. They did maybe over their response to the pandemic these past few years. Maybe over their politics. Something they tweeted or posted. Maybe over things you've just made up in your head. Assumptions you've made. I've never been angry at my wife because of assumptions I've made. Just had imaginary conversations in my head with her and I get really mad at the things she says to me in my head. Whatever it is, you know who it is. Jesus says, go to them. Like now. Like, like when this sermon ends. Don't come to the table. And Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11. Like if we have something against our brother and sister in Christ, he's like, don't come to the table. He actually tells us that dangerous. The sermon ends, don't come to the table, don't sing the songs, don't pray the prayers, don't go through the external actions. Go and seek reconciliation with that person. Maybe you've got to humble yourself and step outside and make a phone call or send a text or maybe even leave. How many pastors invite you to just leave church? Like, leave, like get in your car and go see them. And if that sounds extreme, Realize, Jesus is preaching this sermon in Galilee. That's in northern Israel. And he's describing a situation in which his hearers would have traveled to Jerusalem in southern Israel 
to make a sacrifice. He says, yeah, after you've made that journey and you get there and you're surrounded by everybody, you're making that sacrifice and you realize that there is still this issue between you and this other person, stop. And even if you've got to walk days back to Galilee, no cell phone to step outside and call anybody with. Even if you've got to postpone your trip and make a second one, Jesus says, dude, that's, that's how important, that's how much precedence the right internal affection takes over the, the external action. The external action of the offering means nothing if there are not matching internal affections of the heart. Shades, our worship, it means nothing if it is not flowing forth from internal affection. Doesn't, doesn't David say this? When David has sinned, in Psalm 51 and verse 16, he says, God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering with all the external actions. No, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise shades we can worship all we want we can hear the word all we want we can pray all the prayers sing all the songs take of the table but it is all empty action unless it comes from a heart that's full of affections transformed affections and jesus shows us excuse me jesus shows us the very habits that the holy spirit uses to transform our heart Will we humbly embrace the habit of reconciliation? And not just with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but as a witness to the world as, as well. I think that's what we see in Jesus' second example. Look at it quickly with me, verses 25 to 26. Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This example moves from the courts of worship to the courts of the, the world. And right here, we've got an accuser who apparently has a case against us. Again, because of anger that we have expressed, perhaps through slander or libel, so he's taking us to court, or perhaps through the angry refusal to repay them for something we legitimately owe them. That seems to be what specifically Jesus has in view right here. But either way, no matter what the specific situation is, Jesus' point is that hanging on to anger leads to judgment. You hang on to that, you're going to get handed over to the judge, to the guard, into prison. His point is that hanging on to anger leads to judgment. And again, he calls us to a new heart habit of reconciliation. He says, don't, don't be forced to, be, to, to reconcile by the courts. No, humble yourself. Go to your accuser. Make things right. Seek real reconciliation, even if it's costly. This will bear witness to the world. Nobody does this. It'll be you being salt and light. Like we were called to be back up in verses 13 to 16. Salt and light showing forth, shining a light on how Jesus transforms a heart of anger to now act out of affection. 
Shades, all of this that Jesus is saying, does this sound impossible? It is on our own, but everything is possible when empowered by God. Christ can empower us to do this. I know Christ can empower us to do this because He has done it first Himself. This is what Scripture teaches. We we are empowered to love because He has first loved us. We can be empowered to do this. Seek true, real reconciliation. Humble ourselves. Seek forgiveness. Show mercy. Seek peace. We can do this because Christ has done it first. For we sinned against Him and He had every right to hold it against us. He had every right to make a case against us in the heavenly court. But instead, He took the punishment of the court upon Himself on the cross. He became a sacrifice for us so that we would be able to worship by His sacrifice. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that righteousness might be empowered in us. For now, we may be filled with His Holy Spirit who works through holy habits to transform our hearts to live out of love. Romans 5.5 The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And Romans 13 and verse 8 declares that when we live out of love, we fulfill the law. We have truly lived in line with the Word of God, in other words. And we've done it in the power that He provides through Christ. Our actions flow out of empowered affections. Do you believe this, Shades? Put the Word of God in front of you. Know that it is the Holy Spirit who works through these holy habits to transform our hearts. Believe He will do it by His power and step out and act on it, trusting that He'll provide the power that He's promised. Shades, you've heard it said, do not murder. And Christ says to you that He has provided every ounce of power to truly live in line with that Word. Not out of mere duty, but out of delight, out of love. Christ says that he empowers the greater righteousness of a transformed heart. Believe it. Embrace it. And by his power may we live it. For our joy and his glory.